Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome back. I'm Otis, and I'm talking with William White. In the first part of the interview, we talked about blogging, podcasting, and other ways to disseminate our research to the public. An important topic that you've written and spoken about is racism in archaeology. Perhaps when many people think about racism, what they're in fact thinking about is overt, extreme, or individual forms of racism, and not necessarily racism in general. What is racism, and what does this in fact encompass? Uh, that's a pretty big question. What is racism? I mean, it it uh, depends on like you know your background and what country you're living in. Because I mean, the kind of actions that we would consider racism in the United States might not actually, in fact, even be you know considered unethical or inappropriate in a lot of other contexts. But you know, my experience living in the United States, uh, you know, race racism in the United States is taking action based on either real or perceived differences based on physiological traits. And in the United States, skin color is the main physiological trait that, uh, you know, we're, we're basing um, racist actions on because race as a category in the United States predominantly involves skin color and other uh, biological expression of uh, a phenotype. So, you know, if, if you, Go to different places, you know, if you went to, uh, you know, different European regions, they might have a different conception of race that sometimes skin color is involved, but there could be other attributes we don't know about. Uh, I mean, I don't like to draw parallels to things that I don't really know directly from my own experience, but from history books, things that I've learned or uh, documentaries and talking with other people from Europe, there's definitely kind of a regional belief that, you know, folks that in the United States we'd categorize as white, you know, they're of a different group or a different ethnicity that in a lot of ways the um, discrimination against those kind of folks we might see as racism in the United States. One thing that I think of most clearly is uh, uh, Roma individuals or folks that have been called, you know, many terms like uh, gypsies in Europe from talking to people that I know that are European or things that I've read, I've learned that, you know, they do, they do discriminate against folks that are Roma or gypsies in some parts of Europe, but I'm not European. So I don't know if that, I don't know if I can say that is equal to the racism that I experienced in the United States. What is institutional racism or structural racism? Okay. So that's another great question too. Um, when it comes to the United States, once again, I'll focus on what I know best. Uh, American society was was based on, um, you know, individuals from certain European nation states uh, or kingdoms that then became nation states uh, claim, laying claim to territory in North America, and then um, uh, kind of taking over the resources of those areas uh, and. Um, in the United States, they used skin color and ethnicity, but mainly skin color when it comes to racism, to set up a kind of hierarchical structure where individuals of European descent, depending on where they're at and their status as native born American or immigrant or you know their religious beliefs, 
they set up a um, system where individuals that could trace themselves to Europe and had uh, more uh, ancestors of European um, birth were considered at a higher social status than individuals who are from Africa, Native American individuals, Asian immigrants from many different parts of Asia, India, China, specifically in the American uh, experience. Uh, but in this world, uh, um, the social structures like the legal system, the economic system, for example, getting loans for businesses or um, uh, being taxed at different rates, and the political system was all uh, centered around, was, you know, really shaped based on this idea that individuals from European countries who are considered white in the United States um, were actually better or superior to individuals of uh, non-white descent. Those structures were set up to try and build, you know, to reinforce that hierarchy, but also to create a dialectic between individuals of European descent and individuals who are not of European descent. And the entire goal, once again, was to co-opt and control resources, including human resources. So by having these structures where individuals of European descent who could own, who own property could vote, they could set up all the legal, um, all the laws in that area. They could make things like slavery free. They could make things like, uh, um, taking away the franchisement from women or from uh, black men, they could make all those things legal. So with those structures being established, it set up a system where individuals of European heritage were more likely to succeed economically and politically in the United States. Um, we have done much to try and get to remedy that situation. You know, the Civil War was fought primarily over the fact of whether individuals were going to be slaves and all of their human labor co-opted to uh, enrich the wealth of rich people in the South or whether that was not going to happen. You know, the civil rights movement definitely trying to get rid of laws that were that segregated the United States into uh, white and non-white enclaves. But we just haven't gotten to a point where all the structures in our society um, uh, prevent discrimination and prevent uh, inequality. And really, that's kind of what it's all about, uh, trying to break down that uh, um, trying to break down that disproportionate access to political power, uh, economic power, and um, uh, um, cultural uh, control that has really shaped the United States. So structural racism or structural racism is the discriminatory policies and practices that have been baked into the United States um, political, economic, and uh, social structure that that makes it so there is more inequality in the United States, and that that inequality would be uh, concentrated on persons of non-European descent. What are some common examples of racism that might be encountered specifically within archaeology? Oh, that's a good question too. Um, okay, well, one one I will take, you know, one way that is uh, pervasive in the United States is discussion of prehistoric versus historic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's like a... Um, you know, like in, I don't know if, how familiar you are with American archaeology, but there's an idea that 
um, before the arrival of Europeans to uh, the new the new world, there was no history, and that written history and text comes in the United States along with Europeans, and when they show up, that's when history begins. So the historical period, the historical period of archaeology begins with the arrival of Europeans. So the time before that, regardless of how oral histories have recorded these things, regardless of how cultural beliefs and stories and um, spiritual values that all the Americans had that were living here before Europeans arrived, regardless of all that stuff, all that's considered before history. So this one is so deeply embedded in archaeology, it's difficult to even um, separate but there's an idea that, you know, history, which is associated with civilization and, um, you know, a higher level of organization and thinking, arrives with European individuals. And that everything that does not have those written texts and those kind of things associated with it is not at the same level as history or historical archaeology. And as someone who, you know, calls himself a historical archaeologist and you know, focuses on historical archaeology. This is something that, like, I have to deal with every single day because, you know, my my job title is based on that. My, you know, uh, description of what I do to other archaeologists is based on that. Now, how is that related to race? Of course, the people who were not writing down the records in the way that Europeans could read them or understand them were not white. They, the people have been classified as Native American. So there's an implicit understanding that individuals who are native did not have history until Europeans got there and that Europeans had history and they're the ones who bring and bestow history upon the United States. And that, I mean, you read that in every single article, the Society for Historical Archaeology, which I've been a member of for a long time. And I, you know, I like that organization. My title as a historical archaeologist is directly related to this race-based concept. Why do you think that there's a lack of people of color working in archaeology, particularly in the Americas? Yeah, that's a that's a deep question uh, that I struggle with myself, too. Um, you know, I can talk about this one from my own experience. When I was a kid, the only th- I just wanted to be an archaeologist. Well, actually, I wanted to be an astronaut, and then I wanted to be an archaeologist, but I'm too tall to fit in a NASA suit, and so I grew up in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and NASA was, we didn't have SpaceX in 1984. So when you're a kid, you know, if it's not NASA, it ain't going to happen. And since I wasn't Russian, then I didn't have access to the Soviet space system. So I focused on our American, you know, space exploration system. And I was too tall to fit in there, any of the spacecraft by the time I was in junior high. So I just bailed on math and decided that I wanted to do archaeology. Now, I grew up in a house where we didn't have a lot of access. I mean, I wasn't the poorest kid in, in my neighborhood or whatever, but, you know, my parents had gone to college and they paid for it themselves. But by the time it came time for me to go to college, we were in a whole new world where, you know, mowing lawns during the summer wasn't going to cut it to pay tuition. And like you were mentioning before, textbooks were $150 for a lot of these classes. So I had to like take care of my own self going through school and uh, I started off as a, a business major, a major in marketing, and I could not stand uh, business classes. <laughs> I think I made it like one day as a marketing major <laughs> before I switched my major to anthropology. 
that I didn't know um, how to get a job in anthropology and I didn't know like, you know, how one got paid to do archaeology. But I knew that I definitely cared more about archaeology than I did about marketing. And if I was going to go to college, I can start a business anytime, anywhere with any degree. I don't even need a degree to start a business. But if I was going to go to college, I decided I wanted to do something that I found interesting and that I really cared about. And it wasn't until I, you know, graduated from college, basically, that I um, that I started trying to figure out how to turn that desire to do archaeology into a gainful employment. So I didn't know that there was CRM. I went to a, I graduated in 2001 and no one even told me that CRM existed till after I graduated. So I spent a long time trying to figure out how that was going to happen. And finally, an old professor told me that most archaeologists work in cultural resources and that I should try to do that. And this was kind of, I think there were listservs for archaeology jobs, but I wasn't part of any of that. So once again, go into the networking thing. I didn't know anyone. There was no mentor for me. And, um, you know, I didn't know how to actually get a job in archaeology. But uh, I, I went for a master's. And, you know, at the same time I was applying for the jobs, once I found out about cultural resources, I applied to a master's program. And once again, I got in. And when I got in my master's program, I went to the University of Idaho, where they have a strong um, commitment to training archaeologists to do cultural resources, basically to get gainful employment. And they run um, cultural resources projects through the University of Idaho's anthropology uh, department. So that's where I got my first experience in CRM. And, uh, you know, I used that experience to get a job after I graduated with my master's. Now, all along the way, I never saw anyone who was black ever do archaeology, ever. Uh, when it, even when you watch the Nova specials on you know public television, it's always white archaeologists, and sometimes they'll have you know one or two black archaeologists. If they're in Africa, they might let them talk on TV, but it's always just white archaeologists. So, I I just had a dream of wanting to be an archaeologist, and. Uh, once I became a cultural resources archaeologist, that was kind of the end. I wanted to just, you know, keep that job. But it's really hard to keep employment unless you get enough experience and, you know, uh, rise high in the companies. And that's why I went for my PhD, because the people at the top of the companies, they have PhDs. I figured, you know, why if they can do it, I can do it. And then once I do that, then I'll actually have a little bit of job security. Going back to why we don't see more minorities that's a pretty lonely path that I walked and I was always the only one there and I had no idea that this was going to turn into paid employment. And you can imagine every archeologist actually knows this in the back of their head that they don't have a whole lot of fans at home. And when you tell your parents you want to be an archeologist, they, I don't think very many people are you know, overjoyed that their child's going to choose something like archeology span because it's hard to know how that's going to turn into a job that's going to keep you from coming back home and living in the basement. So when you look at, go back to those structural inequities that I was talking about, how, you know, African-Americans disproportionately live in poverty, have less job security, have access to worse schools, you know, live in more dangerous neighborhoods. If a student makes it out of that to college, um, their parents are, and their family are going to be pushing real hard for them to become a doctor or to uh, go into, you know, engineering or something like that, where they can 
come out and make a lot of money as an employee or start a business that's going to be really lucrative. So banking, finance, something like that. If someone says they want to do something like social work or medicine, they can see, oh, well, this person at least is going to serve the community. But if somebody says they're going to do something like, uh, you know, acting, uh, drama, anthropology, sociology, um, physical education, like it's difficult for a family to see that happen to their uh, their student or their their young person and not be like, are you crazy? You know, you need to change your ways because this isn't going to turn into a job. So I think that there's a lot of people who, you know, with no support like me, you know, they just listen to what everyone else says. Like, it, you know, it's hard to find a job doing archaeology. You keep getting laid off. It's not easy. You don't get paid millions unless you start your own company. And so it's hard. There's not a lot of support and just a lot of people, you know, they just get turned away. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, no matter what race they are, think that archaeology is interesting and say they wanted to do it, but they couldn't figure out how it was going to turn into a job. So they just stopped doing it. In the case of non-white people, there's way more pressure because if you escape the kind of situations that most of us come from, uh, there's not very many people who are going to be uh, happy or support you in your decision to go into archaeology. What are the potential problems of having less diversity among archaeologists? Well, I mean, there's kind of twofold. The issue of the, you know, what I brought up before about prehistory and history. If there's no one to tell you that, you know, it's discriminatory or that you're taking discriminatory action against individuals of native heritage by thinking that they don't have history and that they're incapable of, you know, the kind of complex organization and thought as Europeans. If there's no one there to check that kind of stuff, we end up in the same kind of archaeology that we've been having for the last, you know, I don't know, 150 years in the United States. Archaeology of white people making things up, based on what they know about the world and what they've seen at archaeological sites without any kind of, uh, you know, inquiry of individuals who are not white. So, you know, many of these things we know about the past through archaeology are based on, you know, the, the, the observations in the field, right? How many artifacts, what the shape of those things are, uh, where they were found at, how long ago that was, you know, that place was occupied. I mean, those things are objective archaeological knowledge. But interpreting those things, you know, what does that symbol or sign on those ceramics mean? Why are these features oriented in the way that they are? How come people were using this kind of resource in this area versus another resource which they could very easily use? Those things come from cultural knowledge that many people who are not white, um, you know, native folks, Alaskan uh, natives, uh, Hawaiian natives, African-Americans, uh, Hispanic folks, those folks know and remember from their, you know, ancestors, the answers to many of these questions. But if you don't ever connect with those folks and you live in a world where no one pushes you to connect with them, then you just kind of make it up yourself. And it's not really rooted in cultural knowledge. It's just straight up observation from the field. And there's a lot of archaeologists that say, yeah, well, we get kind of crazy when we're going off on these kind of qualitative analysis we should just really stick to observations in the field and just stick to these kind of measurements. But that kind of archaeology is the same kind of archaeology that just sits in a museum forever and no one ever checks it out. The interesting stuff, the engaging things that connect us to different cultures, that's what folks want to know about. And those are the kind of things that are difficult to answer 
if you don't have anyone besides white archaeologists making those decisions. The second thing is, if archaeologists want to survive, they're going to have to be relevant to societies. And um, one of the best ways to be relevant to society is to address, uh, address and connect with the entire half of your country that you never engaged with, right? And I can tell you now, engagement with you know people who are white, who have been uh, you know racialized as white with non-white communities, I mean, there's a lot of distrust because of those structures we talked about. There's a lot of, um, you know, uh, unwillingness to cooperate with white archaeologists because they're not seen as um, uh, accomplices or folks that can actually help them improve their community. They're seen as the other, you know, the kind of competition or whatever for resources and everything. And also they're seen as a member of the group who has, created and maintained this inequality in their community. So a white archaeologist walking into a Native American uh, tribal historic preservation office with questions about these, you know, artifacts and other stuff is going to get met with a completely different, you know, demeanor approach and willingness to collaborate than an, uh, an archaeologist from that Native community who's working in the benefit of that Native community, asking these questions that matter to their own ancestry that they've been wondering themselves. So um, uh, the, the things that we think we know about the past can actually be broadened or um, um, improved in many ways if we connect with those communities we have overlooked. And then the other thing is uh, the diversity thing. If archaeology is seen as only something that white people do, then it's only going to be something that's supported by white people. And right now in the United States, archaeology is under threat from you know those same individuals who say that they care about heritage and history and all that stuff because they don't want to do cultural resource management and they don't want to um, you know care about our own past in these material uh, sites so they say that they care about heritage but they actually in fact want things to be speedier and don't really care a lot about archaeology and if we just focus on the few individuals who are fans of archaeology and are interested in it it's not going to be long before they can change those laws and then we won't have any kind of historic preservation and we won't care, you know, we won't really have any kind of way to uh, care about our heritage sites before they get destroyed. So I think the archaeology question in the United States is really relevant because archaeologists are trying to make, you know, uh, better uh, understandings of the past and they are trying to, well, I mean, some are trying to connect with Native, African-American, Chinese immigrant communities, but because of the entire legacy of uh, white supremacy, they're finding it hard. And then finally, they're realizing that as they just sit around and talk with each other, you know, that's creating backlash from communities of non-white communities of color that want to uh, have a voice in the way their past are represented. And, uh, you know, white archaeologists, they don't really know what to do about it. What can we do to push to change the system? Or how can we make archaeology more inclusive? Uh, so, you know, the one thing that I would, I, first of all, this is not, uh, this is not like a permanent condition. You know, if we make systems, we can always change these human systems. So the same structures that, um, uh, prevent people from participating in archaeology can always be changed to be more inclusive. 
And so I would think that the, you know, the number one thing that folks should do is just think introspectively about themselves. So when they hear these kind of statements come out, if you're, you know, of European descent, you consider yourself white, but immediately you start to get really defensive or frustrated when you hear me talk this way. Like the very first step is to think about why you have those feelings. Like, why are you uh, frustrated to hear someone say something like this? Um, uh, a lot of times I've found in the past talking with folks, uh, you know, that are of European descent, it's the, it's the kind of, um, it changes the entire way that you see the United States and see yourself, right? No longer are you seen as just a benign entity and that all people are created equal. You realize that there is disproportionate uh, uh, um, status in archaeology, that there is inequality, and that by upholding those same kind of uh, values that um, uh, uh, maintain whiteness, you actually, in fact, are participating in the system that was created for you to participate in that way. So it's a lot of it's a lot of mental gymnastics for people to change and to think about themselves and their own identity, so that they'll actually have the space to listen to what people of color are saying. So once you start thinking about yourself, like the first step is just to think, take that split second to think: Why are you reacting this way? Why do you feel that way? Why are you so offended by hearing these kind of things? And then the next step is to Use that space created by thinking about yourself to listen to the words that are coming out of people of color's mouth. So you're going to hear this kind of stuff coming from black neighborhoods where, you know, African-American sites are going to get destroyed. And it's only white archaeologists who are working on it. And they're asking, well, how could you possibly know what we want? You don't even really know who we are because you don't have the same experiences as us. If you're one of those uh, archaeologists and you are, you know, um, in that kind of situation, the first step is to listen to uh, communities of color. What are they saying? Are they saying that they um, are frustrated at the fact that, you know, archaeology is happening? Are they mad that um, they're not included in the decision-making? Are they mad because they don't get to control and preserve their site? Like, just listen to what is happening. Those are the first two steps. Think about yourself and what your, you know, your cultured responses to hearing this kind of opposition to you. And then listen to uh, communities of color. And I think that just by doing those two things, you know, thinking about the way that we have been conditioned to think about race in the United States, like first think about your responses and why you are feeling this way. What has, what has led up to this point to make you be in that position? That will make you reinvest or reinvestigate your own identity and to think more systemically about the way you've been acculturated and what that's doing to you. And at the same time, if you start listening to the needs of the communities in which you're working, especially non-white communities, you'll learn that for many years, their houses have been destroyed, even though they were historical, and no one seemed to care. And they are very frustrated at 60 years of development in their neighborhood and their heritage sites getting destroyed with no one caring about it. And, and they're not necessarily aiming right at you because you're white. They're aiming at the system that destroys their homes and erases their memory without anyone thinking about it. Or they might, in fact, be pissed off that you're white and that you're doing work there. There's nothing you can do about your own white status, but you can definitely listen to how come they're doing that. This probably is coming from a whole bunch of other grievances that happen outside of archaeology that don't really have anything to do with this you know, project you're working on. But you can start thinking about all the things that have happened to those folks 
and why they would end up in that situation. I've, I, I mean, all I don't have the actual solutions to increasing diversity in archaeology or addressing our own um, tendencies in archaeology, but I do think that the only solutions we're ever going to find is by working together, working with communities, and thinking reflexively about what our actions do and the impact of our actions on communities. I think that racism in general is a very important topic that people should be learning about and discussing more. So thanks for taking the time today to talk to us about how this affects us specifically in archaeology, and I hope that it'll give people more to contemplate. I'll put some links to your works in the episode notes so that people can check out those and find out more about the subject. Okay, thanks. Have a nice day then. Yep, you too. Thank you. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, context is everything.